This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Now, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre leaves you story-wise in such a way that uh, the sequel certainly could be possible. And it was one of the, the grittiest and, you know, scariest movies of its era. It was banned in so many countries. You all know the lore of the original film um something in it that's a little underappreciated is the humor and there is some humor in that original film despite what some people kind of like to recolorize it as um what was surprising is when they did go for a sequel they leaned all the way into that dark humor and the film we're talking about tonight here on season 17 of the Seeking Human Victims podcast, the Toby Hooper Terror Timeline. And tonight we are talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. And of course, I am your host, the devil you know, the original motherfucker and the high priest of the coven of the goat, the Rev, Dan Wilson. And I am here with my family of cannibals. First up, Dreamboat Annie. I don't want to hear it. I want to see it. Bright lights, big titties. Woo! <laughs> and rounding it out, the jackal of Carlsberg himself, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Griswold. Who sent you? Those sissies over at Del Mar Catering? That chicken shit burrito man bunch. <laughs> Two more obscure quotes you two picked from the movie. There, there's a fucking plethora. This is one of the most quotable horror movies of all time. Um, Dog Will Hunt probably being the most famous fucking quote from this movie. But my personal favorite is, Lick my plate, you dog dick! Um... Yeah, so this movie I've seen a bunch, like a bunch. Uh, I I might have seen this one before I saw the original as a kid, or at least parts of it on TV. But as a teen and a twenty-something horror fan, this is one that got a lot of play. And uh, I mean, hell, it was even recently referenced in pop culture in that Child's Play reboot, where they watch it and like Chucky kind of gets the idea of like how to cut people up and shit from the gore in the movie um so yeah what about y'all uh interestingly enough i can only recall seeing this all the way through before viewing it for the podcast only saw it all the way through about once 
and I really can't remember if I rented it or it just was on TV or something. But yeah, I didn't watch this one a whole lot. Um, I watched this movie with you for the first time at some point in the last however long. I don't know when it was, but I've seen it. It's a rare case where Annie has viewed the film. So <laughs> it's uh, a, a landmark. one in the calendar. Yeah, a landmark edition of the program for that reason alone. Um, but let's dig on in. This is an interesting story. Uh, this is not nothing Toby Hoop really did in his career was very traditional. Um, so <laughs> there's. We'll we'll dig further into that here coming up on the Coroner's Report. And our pals at HorrorPainGoreDeathProductions.com will be back hopefully in a couple of weeks with some more new tunes. But tonight uh, we will be Sans musical guest and we're going to go ahead and dig on into the Coroner's Report. The Coroner's Report. So originally, this idea is percolating between Toby Hooper and Kim Hinkle, who, as you may recall, was the writer of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre film and a co-collaborator of Toby's for many years. The idea was that the sequel would be an entire town of cannibals and be a satire of the film Motel Hell from 1980, which itself was a satire of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The title was originally set to be Beyond the Valley of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the studio forced considerable changes to the screenplay, even hiring a new screenwriter, and the result of those changes are what really led into this film. Uh, He decided that the black comedy element was going to be front and center in this where it was there in the first film it was mostly unacknowledged by the viewers because they were so focused on the gritty content of the movie Um, originally hooper was going to produce the film himself but he could not find a director that the film's budget would afford so he didn't want to direct the sequel himself he was going to like conceptualize it and hire a director that all kind of went out the window for budgetary reasons, uh, there is a great documentary called Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films. And uh, this, of course, was the production company in charge of this. This was his third picture in his three-picture deal with Canon that he signed right out of to- Poltergeist and the success of that film. And Canon Films themselves went in with their own expectations. They were expecting a very pure horror film And, of course, we'd already mentioned Toby was wanting to push the black humor element of this. And so, ultimately, Canon kind of ended up being unhappy with the final product. And there was a butting of heads throughout the production, uh, up to and including the casting of Leatherface. Gunnar Hansen, the original Leatherface, was going to come back for this film. He was at least approached to reprise the role. But he claims that they only offered him scale plus 10%. And that 10% was going to go to his agent. And he replied to them that he had no agent. So then they just offered him scale without the additional 10%. Okay, here's less. So uh, Hanson said he found the offer too low and declined. Now, uh, a party from Canon 
Scott Holton, who was a unit publicist for them, had a different take. He said that Hanson vacillated about the part, uh, I guess meaning he complained about it. Uh, the offer was rescinded. He did not believe the average viewer was even aware of who the original actors in the first film were, stating himself, who are Ed Neal, Gunnar Hanson, and Marilyn Burns? So kind of disrespectful to the source material in a way. That's, I, I mean, that's that's kind of fair for Leatherface. You don't really see the actor, but otherwise, yeah, a little, little shady. And perhaps it's the weirdness of those two combative forces behind the scenes that kind of make this movie what it is, um, which is a very strange but fun end result. Of course, we'll talk much more about that, but I think right there you can kind of see the seeds of why this movie ended up like it did um the music pretty strong element to this of course it's got another great score by toby hooper i, I love and he that's you know again people talk about carpenter all the time as like being this great composer and i wouldn't put hooper in that element as a musician but as a guy who like knows the sounds and the things that make his films work he's great at it and i think he's quite underrated so he and jeremy lambert did the actual score but really what stands out even more than that to me is a fucking excellent soundtrack very like new wave of the time um you had like lords of the new church the cramps that was the first fucking movie that the goo goo muck was in well before wednesday adams was shaking that thing uh concrete blonde Tim Buck three, uh, what you had Oingo Boingo, and there was even a song from Rocky Erickson in the film called Crazy Crazy Mama, but it was not actually included on the soundtrack. But still, uh, a gr- one of the great '80s horror soundtracks, really. Yeah, it definitely had some uh, fun inclusions, um, and I think you know it just. It really adds to the overall tone that I think Toby was more going for rather than, you know, the pure horror. He's like, all right, we're going to put some some jams in here. And I think it just kind of matches the the dark comedy tone that he was trying to go for better than just like a standard score. I agree. It definitely does separate it from the original film. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing in my book, but I can see, you know, it was. I guess cool for its time, but it, I think unlike in the first film, where you just had kind of the you know lazy country music in the background and then the score. This this soundtrack kind of dates it, but, but you know some people find that fun. Oh yeah, I I'm one of them. I I think that um, it's absolutely like rubber stamps it as an article of the '80s and the the whole movie beyond the soundtrack but like the way it's shot the kills like everything is very 80s horror about it even to the point that you have tom savini working on some of the special effects here but to Uh, be fair isn't doesn't isn't it that time isn't it the 80s yes yeah it's okay that it's time stamped it is it is Oh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, some movies, like, kind of want to have a more, like, timeless feel. Like yeah, this ambiguous. One, this one's very much, like, this is 1986. Like, you're thrown right in the middle of it. Um, 
and I think it was ahead of its time in the horror genre as well in terms of using contemporary music because you really didn't see that a ton in horror movies. You've seen like Return of the Living Dead, um, Fright Night. Like there's a few, you know, horror movies of the 80s, the early 80s that started incorporating that. And then it became like by the late 80s, it was a trend. You had Dokken, you had fucking Laz Rocket in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. You had, you know, like it was pretty much a standard thing that you were going to get some sort of like musical tie in to the movie. Uh, yeah, I think this is a this is a year or two before Alice Cooper doing the soundtrack to a Friday the Thirteenth movie. So yeah, it absolutely is. It's like right when this is all starting to take over, and then of course, when you like fast forward to like the early two thousands and kind of like all of that horror that was spawned off of Scream and that type is like very much goes back to that where they're incorporating all of the, like the popular contemporary rock music. And uh, so, yeah, a bit, a bit ahead of its time here with the score and the soundtrack. And I'm, I'm a big fan. I already mentioned Tom Savini helped with a bunch of the special effects on this one. Very cool. Um, cast. Let's talk about a cast. Just a, a really good one. Dennis Hopper and one of his only like pure horror roles. Motherfuckers in a lot of crime movies and a lot of thrillers. But uh, one of the pure horror roles. And he's almost... Um, you got to wonder, like, if Rob Zombie took a little bit of the John Quincy Wydell character from Lieutenant Bodie Lefty Enright. Not not a ton, but a little. Uh, Dennis Hopper, of course, one of the all-time great American actors. A uh, member of the Actors Studio, first appeared on TV in 1954. Soon after, appeared in the infamous James Dean films, Rebel Without a Cause and Giant, as well as Gunfight at the OK Corral in 1957. In the next 10 years, he became a TV star. And then by the 60s, he'd appeared in other films like Cool Hand Luke, Hang 'em High, and True Grit. Uh, he began a prolific, prolific and acclaimed photography career in the 60s as well. Um, he made, yeah, excuse me. He made his directorial debut with Easy Rider in 1969, where he and Peter Peter Fonda uh, wrote and co-starred in it with Terry Southern. Uh, the film earned him a Cannes Film Festival Award for Best First Work and a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Following the critical and commercial failure of his second film as a director, the last movie in 1971, he worked on various independent and foreign projects where he was uh, frequently typecast as a mentally disturbed outsider. Films like Mad Dog Morgan and Apocalypse Now. Uh, he went on to helm his third directorial work in Out of the Blue in 1980. Uh, he also appeared in Rumblefish, The Osterman Weekend, and My Science Project. He got wide acclaim for his performances in Blue Velvet and Hoosiers. His fourth directorial outing was the movie Colors in 1988. Uh, I mean, just so many fucking movies. I... I Super Mario Brothers, Speed, Waterworld, Alpha and Omega, The Last Film Festival, Crash, and many, many, many more. The iconic, the legendary Dennis Hopper. Yeah, this feels like a very odd film for him to do. Uh, you know, this is around the same time he's turning in all these performances, you know, like you mentioned, Hoosiers and things like that. So this kind of feels out of left field, but maybe he just wanted the work. Um, yeah, the guy's a fantastic actor I just i feel like maybe he 
really didn't have enough screen time because I guess the story's more about Stretch, you know, the damsel in distress. But, you know, the character kind of has, you know, one purpose and one face in this movie. Yeah, he's fun. I think it's a fun character, but he doesn't really sink his teeth into it to an immense degree. There's really nothing else like it in his film catalog. He was apparently not a fan. We'll we'll talk about that more in the auditorium. So stay tuned. And then we had Caroline Williams as Vanita Stretchbrock, the radio DJ who ends up being our main heroine, uh, slinging that chainsaw around at the end of the movie. Uh, best known for this role, of course, but she's in a lot of other stuff. She's in Alamo Bay in 1985, The Legend of Billie Jean in 1985, Stepfather 2, in 1989, plays Tom Cruise's love interest in Days of Thunder in 1990. She's in Leprechaun 3 in 1995. How the Grinch Stole Christmas in 2000. Halloween 2 in 2009 by Rob Zombie. And then the horror genre most recently popped up in Hatchet 3 in a pretty prominent role in 2013. As she's made guest appearances on several TV shows like Hunter, Murder, She Wrote, ER, Suddenly Susan, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, The District, and Grey's Anatomy. She made her film debut in the 1975 film Smile and went on to have that insane filmography. And in 1990, she reprised her role as Stretch in a brief cameo in Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Uh, as so she did kind of come back to this and has stayed pretty active in the horror community. She was recently in the remake of Blood Feast in 2016, as well as a horror film called Martian Land in 2015 and Phantasma in 2017. She's very active on podcasts, horror TV shows, conventions, you name it. Uh, not not hard to find. And I yeah, go ahead, Annie. She worked her fucking ass off in this one. Uh I mean, she she dressed sensibly. Like, I knew she was, you know, like, first time she stepped on screen, the first time I saw this movie, I was like, she's got it. Because she was wearing sensible clothing, sensible shoes. Uh, she was an independent woman. She was ready. She was ready to go. Um, big fan of Stretch, personally. Um, but I do have to say, uh, in my head, uh, it I, my brain was gonna is going to replace her with um, the aunt from... Roseanne forever. You know, the... the Lori Metcalf? Yeah! <laughs> <Okay>. Aunt Jackie. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, somebody previously said who is Marilyn Burns, but I remember Marilyn Burns and those, you know, white bell bottoms. So, uh, you know, she's put in the same situations as Marilyn Burns' character towards the end of the film. Uh, I guess, you know, it was a a passable performance. I mean, she's called upon to scream a lot, and she did that. So, yeah, I too am a big fan of Stretch. I just like her attitude. I like the she kind of doesn't really take any shit from the dudes around. Uh, she's um, the the whole radio DJ persona was just an interesting angle to take. I thought you know it gave a little something different to it. Um. So I was, a, I was also a fan of her. I think towards the end, like, it gets a little, like, okay. But, but no, I, I'm a huge fan of Miss Stretch. And Caroline Williams still out there kicking ass today. Um, then we had Jim Cito returning 
as the cook. Now he has a name in this one, Drayton Sawyer. And this was his final film. You can go back to our Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 1 episode earlier in the season to learn all about him. Drayton Sawyer sounds like an indie wrestler, like a motherfucker. <laughs> it does. Um, I think he kind of steals the show in this movie, honestly. He's, he doesn't have quite the big role that he has in the first film, but he's got a lot of screen time. He's got a lot of great fucking dialogue. <laughs> If there's one thing I know, it's prime meat. Small businessman always gets it in the ass. I love this town. Yeah. This town loves prime meat. Got me in the beans pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, you got one of them peppercorns. <laughs> yeah, uh, we could go on all day with that. But yeah, I think if there's any reason to watch this movie, it's just his dialogue. So I think he was fantastic. And speaking of great dialogue motherfucking bill mosley in his texas chainsaw massacre debut and the role that made him famous as chop top sawyer the twin brother i guess of the hitchhiker nubbins who we learn is his name um he actually got cast in this because he created a short film parody called the texas chainsaw manicure where he played the hitchhiker and he showed it to a screenwriter who got it in the hands of Toby Hooper, and he loved it so much, he kept him in mind and then cast him when he finally made the sequel. And so they couldn't cast him as the hitchhiker because he was dead. He got ran over by a truck at the end of the first movie. So he's his brother who was away at Nam during the first movie and has, you know, come back and has all these, like, flashbacks and shit. <laughs> as chop top like clearly he's like had part of his head blown off in nom or something because he's got the fucking steel plate there that he's always scratching with a coat hanger um so many great lines from fucking chop top as well uh, i mean you know you want to know why bill mosley got cast as otis of course you can go back to our house of a thousand corpses episode and learn all about his career and all the things he's done we've covered him a few times on the show we've met the guy several times great dude Great actor. This is the role that made him famous. Yeah, I'd say that's just a fact. That's not like an opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like they, when that short fell into Toby Hooper's hands, he was like, you solved so many problems. Because how could we get, you know, our main guy back when we killed him? Perfect. This is amazing. And like, that that became such a perfect character for this film that it was then like, in the first, in House of a Thousand Corpses, that he starts out playing almost Chop Top. And he's even talked about how he was like, oh, I thought that's just what you wanted me to do. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we'll throw the word out there. Iconic. And then we had Bill Johnson as Leatherface. We kind of going in, you know, where we mentioned earlier, the studio didn't really see the value of bringing back gunner hansen we kind of went the friday the 13th route here where they're just casting kind of stunt guys basically to come in and play the killer in these movies if they're a big masked killer and in this case bill johnson was our guy particularly for the close-up shots so he was the facial guy more and then stuntman bob elmore did the heavy lifting actually and in, in the wide shots is who you will see and then speaking of stuntmen we had tom morga who plays Leatherface briefly during the bridge scene. So there's actually a third guy that played him in this film. And he is, of course, the guy that played Jason in Friday the 13th, part five. 
Which one is that one? That's the one where it's the fake Jason. He's the guy that oh. acted in the Jason suit, not the guy who played the guy who was masquerading as Jason. Okay, okay, got it. <laughs> and uh, then just going back down through the cast, we had Ken Everett as Grandpa, so also a new Grandpa was cast. Harlan Durand as the patrolman. Kirk Sisko as a detective. James N. Harrell as the Cutright Manager, and Lou Perry as L.G. Peters. He was a fairly famous character actor. He'd been in a lot of small screen roles. Uh, he was on uh, a lot of small roles in TV and film, should I say. He was in the Blues Brothers, brief cameo on Poltergeist. He was in Boys Don't Cry, and of course, this film. He was also, interesting story, a crew member on the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. And so, as an homage to that, he's brought back, actually, as an actor in this film, the radio station manager, LG, who gets skinned alive. LG! The pretty gruesome scene. It's also very fucking chopped up, beats him to death with a hammer in an homage to the original film. It's not, not even to death, because like, he doesn't kill him. He wakes up without a skin. Later in the movie, but yeah. And then we had uh, Barry Kenyon as the Mercedes driver. Chris Doritas as Gunner slash Rick, who was apparently a popular DJ at the time. Uh, longtime country music personality Kinky Friedman as a cameo in the film as a sports anchorman, as well as Dan Jenkins as a TV commentator. And Joe Bob Briggs also has a cameo as a gonzo moviegoer in this film. That entire scene was cut. You can find that scene on YouTube. I would highly recommend it. It is entertaining. If I recall, he gets killed by Leatherface in the scene. Um, and then also Toby Hooper makes a very brief cameo in the background of a scene as well. And that is your cast. Let's talk about the shooting dates and locations. It was shot in Prairie Dell, Texas, which is where the Texas Battleland set was located. The KOKLA radio station was on 6th Street in Austin, Texas. And the bridge chase was in Bastrop, Texas on Loop 150. And then the car crash was shot on Airport Boulevard in Montopolis in downtown Austin, Texas. They shot this film from May 4th of 1986 to July 4th of 1986. I imagine they had a hell of a rap party. The climax was filmed at the closed Matterhorn Amusement Park. That, that is where the Texas Battleland set was located. And the scenes inside the Sawyer home were actually just shot in caves out there near where they were shooting. That's not an interesting fact. And with that one, we're going to go ahead and open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. All right, opening the door to the auditorium. Several, <laughs> excuse me. Several scenes being taken the high priest of the covenant of the go-to literally over here. Um, several scenes were deleted by Toby Hooper for pacing issues, as mentioned in the 2000 documentary, The Shocking Truth. Uh, one lengthy scene that was cut was one that involved the Sawyer clan heading out at night to collect prime meat for their chili by slaughtering movie patrons and a group of rowdy rioting fans. And that is the 
scene where Joe Bob was knocked off. That scene included uh, several awesome Tom Savini effects that didn't make the film either. What a waste. Yeah, it's a bummer. Wish that would have been included. I feel like the cuts might have hurt this movie a little, though I, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Many fans of the original film do not like this movie due to its emphasis on over-the-top gore and wacky humor, two things the first film were not really known for. Um, as I mentioned, Toby argues that the, the original film is pretty funny, but most people don't see that. And um, it is quite a jarring difference between this and the other movie you can see why people don't like it it is very much two different flavors like they might both be ice cream but they're different flavors the group picture on the cover of the video the posters etc was a riff on the breakfast club they're all in the same positions and posed the same bill mosley has gone on record as saying the chop top roll was the favorite that he'd, he'd ever done for good reason. It gave him his career in horror. He would have just been another good character actor had it not been for Chop Top. <laughs> Dennis Hopper has gone on record as saying this was the worst movie he'd ever been in. That was until Super Mario Brothers came out in 1993. And after that, he was on record saying it was the worst movie he had ever been in. <laughs> That's <laughs> ouch. Caroline Williams apparently wanted to make a strong impression in her audition. When she's called in, she went to the end of the hallway and ran screaming into the room where she pulled Toby Hooper and LM Kit Carson out of their seats and used the chairs to barricade the door before she began her scene. It's one way to get their attention. Yeah, that's that's how you get a job. Though there are many differences, as we just mentioned, tonally and otherwise, between the first and second film, there are many storyline connections and Easter eggs. One being that Lefty Enright is a relative of the Hardesty family, and he finds the skeleton of Franklin in his wheelchair from the original film. I guess they're just storing it down there in their little cave. And uh, we find out there at Lefty is Franklin and Sally's uncle. The only actor that they brought back, the only one they could convince them had to be the same face, was, in fact, the cook. Drayton Sawyer, played by Jim Seedow. So he's the only actor that returns from the original film. And, of course, we mentioned that Lou Perryman did work as a crew member on the original film when they submitted this to the mpaa it received an x rating prompted prompting the filmmakers to release it as unrated tom savini has gone on record and stated that the makeup that he did for grandpa on this film is one of his most proud accomplishments and compares it to the makeup for dustin hoffman's aging in the movie little big man in 1970 i will say that was an awesome job that it does bring to mind little big man but yeah that character but great, you know, for the brief time he's on. Yeah, it's almost like the grandpa like de-aged in this one because I mean he looks like a rotting corpse in both of them. But in the first one, that motherfucker looked like a dusty ass mummy. In this one, you know, he's got a little color to his cheeks. There's he's got some saliva going on and shit. Uh, and maybe they got him a Gatorade. <laughs> they they must have got that man some electrolytes. Had that uh, great alcoholic bulbous nose too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Grandpa ruled in this one. Think about the influence of this film. I mean, there's a little like um, we'll, we'll talk more about that coming up. But 
the the line dog will hunt famously is included in the primus song jerry was a race car driver which of course is all over the fucking tony hawk games which became you know made that song like more popular than it ever was when it first fucking came out uh it was pretty wild so yeah if you're wondering where that comes from it's from this movie apparently their australian distributor hoyt distribution Submitted this film for classification in 1986, and it was deemed highly offensive by the classification board and refused a rating, and they banned the film in Australia. Uh, They considered cutting it down, but the scenes and elements that offended them were so many that they just decided not to release it entirely. The ban stayed in effect until MGM resubmitted the film 20 years later. And it was not the MPAA, but Canon, in fact, who was behind cutting the film down to 90 to 100 minutes. That was a major priority for them so that they could have more screenings per day and make more money. So that's why a few of the juicier scenes ended up actually getting cut. And also due to pacing issues. There's also an alternative plot. That involved Lefty as Stretch's father instead of the Hardesty's uncle. That was also scrapped. You can find these deleted scenes on the 2007 Gruesome Edition DVD, however. Mentioned earlier, the name of the hitchhiker from the first film is revealed as Nubbins. So we now know Drayton and Nubbins Sawyer were their names. And I guess that was a nickname, considering Chop Top's name is Robert. Right, probably. Bob Sawyer. The controversial butcher cover of the Beatles album Yesterday and Today is seen hanging in the radio station. Very Toby Hooper move. Apparently, the set caught on fire one night in downtown Austin. And when the firemen arrived to check on the blaze, they found all of these bodies and blood everywhere. And they thought they'd stumbled on a murder. But no, just the set to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Could you imagine, though? Like, you're just like, "Uh uh-oh, downtown warehouse on fire. So you roll up, and there's just, like, literal... How long did that that take to explain, you think? (laughs) No, no, they're fake bodies, I swear. Uh, You know, Cannon, known known to be a pain in the ass a bit, apparently, would give and take money away from the budget during production, depending on how other films were doing at the box office. That would be really fucking annoying. It seems like maybe there's some shady business practices going on. Only afford on some film that's currently in production if the one that's in theaters is doing well. So according to Caroline Williams, now she has stated that Stretch appears in three films. And this is her explanation. So bear with me. She appears in this film, of course. In the uncredited role of a TV reporter in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Now, that was originally supposed to be like a more direct sequel to this film. But it ended up not being because of the studio. However, the director, Jeff Burr, told her, look, I don't know how long these movies are going to carry on, but I want to keep your character alive. I don't want to get rid of you. You're not mentioned anywhere in this screenplay, but I want to make for sure that uh, for the ages, if anybody ever wants to revisit Stretch, it has to be you. 
you will be seen in part three. The fans will know it's you. So the cameo is not just a wink wink. According to the director himself, it is supposed to be the character of Stretch. We know she survived the end of the second movie. So that's an easy explanation. But then according to Williams, also in Hatchet 3, she plays news reporter Amanda Palmer and says that uh, B.J. McDonald on the set told her she's stretched. That's what we're doing here. So I played the character uh, precisely as she would be her. Apparently, Stretch grew up, changed her name, married a law enforcement guy played by Zach Galligan, and then split up from him because she's a woman who is obsessed with pursuing these legends, these myths, which in her mind are not myths. So eh, that's kind of cool. And then also... She appears in Sharknado 4 as a character called Stretch, but she doesn't count this because she says it doesn't fit the description of the character Stretch like the other two movies do. So that's funny as well. On top of that, the chainsaw used in this film belonged to Toby Hooper and rested in a glass display case amongst his property until he passed. And, I, you know, maybe with his family now, I don't know. Cannon, apparently concerned that the production was falling behind schedule, hired Newt Arnold, who would later go on to helm Bloodsport, to oversee the filming and make sure things were done faster and with fewer takes. I mean, Toby Hooper is a fucking artist, man. I don't know what to tell you. Like, let him cook. <laughs> let, let, him, let him do his thing. Uh, but he sometimes seems to have to be reined in by the the purse strings on these projects. You know, the first film, everybody says it's gory. You go back and watch it. It actually isn't. isn't. This one is gory as fuck. Love that for it. And our final couple of odd and interesting facts. So the chainsaw used by Leatherface, the model was a Craftsman 4300. And apparently Caroline Williams once said in an interview when uh, they do the, the scene where Leatherface basically like mimics fucking her with the chainsaw. She thought, oh, my God, my mother's going to see this, but thought it was incredibly tearing for the time. Uh, in a contrast to the majority of horror films in this, most of the people who die are men. And uh, the Sawyers all end up being chainsawed to death as a result of one of their latest victims and a relative of their victim from the first victims. Uh, apparently, Skinny Puppy also sampled a handful of lines from this. Uh, and then finally, our last odd and interesting fact is the body count. A total of eight victims in this film. Eight is a pretty high number of bodies. It sure is. So let's see how this film did. And look at the number! Numbers of the Beast, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 was released on August 22, 1986, with a running time of 101 minutes. On a budget of $4.5 million, it had a box office return in the U.S. of $8 million. So, not exactly what I'd call a smashing success, but not a complete failure either. Yeah, it eked out a few dollars. Probably did pretty good on home video. This is a big rental in the 80s as well. Critical reception. Oh, go ahead. So, no, yeah, you could walk into any video store in the 80s and 90s and find this, you know, pretty front and center in the uh, horror section. Oh, yeah. The critical reception to this one was mixed. You can imagine, even to this day, people really still don't know what to make about it. Roger Ebert gave it one star. 
saying it goes flat out from one end to the other, never spending any time on pacing, timing, or the anticipation of horror. It does not pause to establish the characters. Dennis Hopper has the most thankless task, playing a man who spends the first half of the movie looking distracted and vague, and the second half screaming during chainsaw duels. He said it has a lot of blood and disembowelment, but it doesn't have the terror of the original, nor the desire to be taken seriously. It is a geek show. TV Guide had a similarly negative review, stating that it felt as if Hooper himself has nothing but contempt for his original film and went out of his way to tear it down. The New York Times said his direction is a little sloppy. It is not first-grade chopped steak. All Movies Review was favorable, stating it was much hated at the time of its release, but it's aged remarkably well, now playing as a strangely effective, if none too subtle, satire of several facets of 1980s excesses. It holds a 50% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with the consensus reading, without the tense atmosphere of its predecessor, the stakes feel lower, but it still shocks with a gonzo blend of over-the-top humor and gore. It holds a 42% on Metacritic, with mixed or average reviews, and despite its initial negative impressions, has over time become a cult film, uh, and it had plenty of controversy with censors. We've mentioned its issues in Australia. It also had some problems in Germany, as well as England, um, a highly offensive film to a lot of people in a lot of different countries. It took many years for them to beat back the censors and finally get it released overseas. Beyond the legacy, you know, we talked about the the uh, quotes being sampled in some songs and stuff like that. Uh, initially, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 was going to be a direct sequel, but all of that got retconned. Uh, and then in 1998, Toby Hooper's son, William Hooper, was making a direct sequel to this called All-American Massacre that was going to be both a sequel and a prequel, actually. But he ran out of funds in the year 2000, and it was never completed and released. The trailer did leak online at one point in the early 2000s. Uh, Bill Mosley has talked about it a few times in interviews, something they would certainly like to revisit. But, you know, with, with Toby gone now, who knows? And, and so many of the other people involved in the film also no longer with us. So, uh, it you know, that's that's the legacy. I mentioned that. It also, you know, it was mentioned on the Child's Play remake a few years ago, and they showed, showed a few scenes from it. So, if you want to own a copy of this unique piece of horror history, you can do so, and Annie will tell you how. So, it was first released in September of 1998, on VHS by MGM Home Entertainment as part of their MGM Movie Time collection, which was available exclusively through Warner Home Video. Uh, so they didn't really, like, widely release it. You had to, like, go through them specifically. But then on August 1st of 2000, it was released on a Region 1 DVD back when we still had to make sure we got regions for our DVDs. Um, it was released on Region 1 DVD, so United States, Canada, MG, by MGM Home Entertainment. And then October 10th of 2006, it re received a second DVD release from MGM. That was the gruesome edition that was mentioned er earlier that featured audio commentary with Toby Hooper and David Gregory. Um, and, and David Gregory is the director of the previously mentioned documentary, The Shocking Truth. 
And it also has an audio commentary by Bill Mosley, Caroline Williams, and uh, Tom Savini. The uh, other special features included deleted scenes, um, a, a different feature-length documentary that was called It Runs in the Family, uh, six still galleries, and a trailer. The Blu-ray edition of the film was released on September 11th of 2012, and that also included all of the gruesome edition DVD special features. And then Scream Factory did release their version, um, the collector's edition, on Blu-ray in April of 2016. It is currently available for streaming with subscription to Cinemax or Max, I guess it's called now, HBO. Um, Cinemax is cheaper. And there you have it. The story of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. So, without further ado, we got nothing left to talk about with the Sawyer family here and in the world of Toby Hooper, except to give you our final motherfucking thoughts on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 polarizing movie it was a movie now when i saw it as a youngster like a teenager like sat down and watched it after i'd seen the first one i did despise it i was like what the fuck are they doing here but you know it's one of those movies that grows on you over time it's one of my really like favorite of the texas chainsaw franchise but not for the same reasons that i like the first movie <laughs> um if you ever wanted a peek inside my brain, like this and House of a Thousand Corpses are probably the two best movies to know what it's like to live inside Dan's head. Because it's like, it's not a particularly good or coherent story. There's just a bunch of things happening, but they're colorful and they're entertaining and the characters enamor me and there's a bunch of great one-liners and gore and lights and sets and landscapes and characters and little cheesecake um you know it it's, uh yeah it's just a big mishmash of stuff whether or not that's for you is up for debate as you you've seen with the reviews and and i believe grizz probably has a pretty scathing review coming i can tell by the way he framed his comments in the episode and that's fine uh but for me it works because it's kind of about as insane as i am i thought it was fun um i don't have any emotional attachment to the original texas chainsaw massacre um, so I don't feel like I've been betrayed by the shift in tone or that it doesn't feel the same or anything like that. I don't, I don't fucking care. Um, it's like I said earlier, it's two different flavors of the, the same food. Uh, one's cheese, one's pepperoni, whatever. Um, I happen to like both and that's fine. Um, yeah, it's. I, I like that it's silly. I think Chop Chop's really amusing. Um, I thought the first one was kind of funny, too. So, like, I see what, what he's talking about. And that he was like, y'all didn't even laugh at my jokes. So, I'm going to make them again. Like, sorry. Um, and I love that for him. Um, <laughs> plus, it you know, I think this movie absolutely 
like I know that House of a Thousand Corpses is an amalgamation of a bunch of different things, but is mostly a love letter to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I really think that this film, without it, we wouldn't have gotten the full, the full Firefly, Firefly family series as fleshed out as it is because we got both of kind of like he kind of did the same thing like yeah I, I liked it so it was fun and I would watch it again well Dan your predictions were were true um I don't know if it's going to be scathing but as a whole I don't know if this one works for me uh there's a lot of funny lines you know a lot of good performances like we talked about with Jim Sidlow and Bill Mosley. But I think the film is too disjointed. Uh, you know, like you said, it could be because there were certain things cut. You know, maybe you could have explored in depth. I think it's just kind of an incoherent, you know, I wouldn't call it a mess. There's a little bit of continuity. But I think good performances were underutilized. I think the character of LG was funny, but he wasn't used uh, ter- you know, terribly much. I think Dennis Hopper's performance was just a little bit flat, but you know, he probably hated to have to sign on to this. He probably just needed the money. So usually I can say, okay, it's a fun enough movie to just sit back and enjoy for 90 minutes. I can't really say that about this one, mostly because I think it's 101 minutes, but, but you know, it just, it's not delivering. And I guess I do have an emotional attachment to the first movie and that I think you know, it is, as I've stated many times before in this podcast, the first movie is one of my favorite all-time movies. So this is just kind of disappointing as a follow-up. And I get that, that, oh, we're playing up the black comedy elements. You know, it's the mid-80s. We're making fun of all the excess. But for me, it just doesn't it doesn't do anything. You know, um, I'm usually fine with horror sequels. You get that you're getting like a copy of a copy of a copy. But this just falls short, and it I, I can't understand why. Maybe it's Toby Hooper didn't have the control he wanted, or maybe they took money, or they you know, had too much editing power. I don't know. But ultimately, I just don't think it delivers. So that's my final say on the matter. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end of this story of Toby Hooper's valid opinions from Grizz, of course, like, Though he dissents with ours, his is very much the opinion of a lot of horror fans. So glad to have that represented here. Um, we are, that is fucking what, episode eight now into it. So we're almost done with this season. We only got a couple more. Next week, we are coming back with the very next feature that Toby Hooper did, one of his rare films. I've not actually seen this one from 1990. So there's a four-year gap uh, before he makes another movie. And we're going to look at that next week, a movie called Spontaneous Combustion on the next edition of Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Product of what good scare productions. It is written, edited, researched, and directed by.
by Diane Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredderford, as well as KT Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective owners.